Hi and welcome to the Verity La Poetry Podcast. I'm Alice Allen. In this podcast, we interview poets who've been published in the journal and discuss work that's important to them. In this episode, Michelle and I chat with Melinda Smith, who won the 2014 Prime Minister's Literary Award for her fourth book of poems, Drag Down to Unlock or Place an Emergency Call. Her new book, Goodbye Cruel, is just out from Pitt Street Press. This discussion covers everything from writing an ekphrastic poem using multiple sources, to juggling motherhood with poetry, writing about the theme of suicide, and whether or not there's a Canberra school of poetry. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll just start by thanking you, Melinda, for taking the time to chat with Michelle and I today. I'm more than honoured to be here on the Verity La podcast. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. And we're speaking to you at a particularly productive time, I think, in terms of writing and publishing. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening for you right at this moment? Um, sure. Well, I'm actually, at, yeah, at the moment there's a lot of publishing going on, not so much writing right now because there's a lot of overhead with promoting the things that are being published. Um, so I have uh, one full-length poetry collection that's just come out called Goodbye Cruel, and I have um, an ongoing Instagram poetry project happening at the rate of one poem a day um, with a, an accompanying image um, on a special Instagram account and I have also a, an ongoing collaboration with a letterpress printer called Karen Florence who's also based here in Canberra and we have an artist's book and a chat book which kind of contains most of the material in the artist's book and they've both just um, come to fruition as well so there's there's a lot going on um, promoting those various babies and and getting them uh, readers, as it were. Um, and uh, as a consequence, I'm not doing a lot of fresh writing right now, but I know I just call these fallow periods. And <laughs> when um, when there's time to stop and collect, I'll actually do some, some more creating, as it were. Yeah, and you need those fallow periods, don't you? You need time when you're not putting stuff out so that you can gather yourself and have new experiences and and when you're out there reading from goodbye crawl in launching it how do you feel about the poems now do you feel really satisfied and like they're exactly where you want them to be or do they shift and change as you come back at them and read them to new audiences um i yeah i have a bit more of an ambiguous um well, sorry not ambiguous ambivalent i should say um relationship to them sometimes i think um i'm really happy with the way a particular poems come out and sometimes I think oh I'm so close to this poem I'm so sick of reading it out I don't even know if it does anything anymore um, so I actually end up being guided a lot by the audience in the room when I'm reading them as to what poems are working and what poems aren't and some of them only work on the page and some of them have you know a life in performance as well um, but I think you know whenever you finish a big project that you spend a lot of time on um, 
you could spend a lot of time also looking back at it and going, oh, I'm not sure it's any good anymore. I don't know. Um, and there's that, that kind of creative doubt that creeps in. Um, in the end, you just have to trust to the effort that you put into it and the effort that the people who advised you on it put into it and hope that it's um, it's realised enough of your vision to, to stand on its feet in the world. That's really fascinating that you're talking about feeling that creative doubt even after... I mean, your previous book, Drag Downtown Lock or Place Emergency Call, won a major prize and you've been editor, poetry editor for the Canberra Times. And when I read this book, when I read Goodbye Cruel, I just thought this is, I mean, solid, amazing, mind-blowing. It's, there's, yeah, it's great. But I do, um, I think it's really interesting that, even a very accomplished writer can feel that creative doubt and to the level of, I don't know if any of this is any good. <laughs> you know I, mean? I Yeah, I'm not sure that all of that is productive doubt. I mean, I'm sure some level of mm -hmm. um, doubt is, is helpful for a creative person because it, it, it kind of propels you to push harder with a particular piece of work. But um, my doubt may have crossed over into neurosis quite some time ago. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> We're just we're just living with it, <laughs> as it were. Linda, I wanted to ask you um, because I've seen you perform your poetry several times now, and I think you're a great reader um, of your work and great at reading the room. And uh, I know you're um, self-professed poet who likes to um, amuse. You say, and it, definitely your um, poetry readings are really amusing, as well as many other things. Do you enjoy reading and performing your work in public? Um, I do and I don't. I enjoy having done it. <laughs> I enjoy the feeling mm, just after yeah. it's finished. Um, and I suppose I enjoy what's happening. If, if it's going well and people are connecting with the poems, then I enjoy that feeling of, you know, there's, there's a reason I'm here. I'm doing good work, um, you know, getting inside the heads of these people and, and making them think or making them feel... Um, ways that they wouldn't if they hadn't come and sat in this room. Mm -hmm. um, so I love the feeling that that is happening, but I, I still get terrible stage fright before things. Um, and, you know, people I'm, who I'm know me well... I'm sort of glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> people who know me well know know that anything they say to me half an hour before a gig, I have no idea what they said to me because I was just, you know, in a such, such a kind of flurry. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I do... When it's in the flow of things, it's... It, I, I kind of can enjoy it, but I still get nervous beforehand, which is, again, slightly weird because I've been doing it for a long time now and you would think that that would kind of go away. Mm, yes, I think probably it just gets a bit less or more, you know, doable, but maybe if it goes away, it's not a good sign anyway. <laughs> complacency. I like to think I'm avoiding complacency. <laughs> Um, now, I have a lot of questions about Goodbye Crawl that I want to ask you, but perhaps to start with, we should have a look at Manifest, which is a poem published on Verity La just a few weeks ago, actually, earlier this month. Mm -hmm. And Melinda, I might get you to read this to begin with, and then we can talk a little bit about it. I will do that for you right now. So, this is Manifest. If you must make me, draw me forth through that needle's eye. 
have a care for this raw skin, what bruises and abrades it, how it may be sliced and sutured. I was pure electricity, pure simian ululation. If you must cage me, box and bottle me, franken-birth me in a clumsy bucket, you will learn the sorrow of mangle and botch, of the warp and the scorch mark. You will see it is no sorrow. With luck, I may multiply, I may layer, matrix, palimpsest, I may go coral, become geology. Take your hand from me, set me among a swarm of eyes. As they move over me, they will mark me too. Fantastic. Here we go. Can you talk a little bit about how that was put together? Yes, I mean, that's... um. That's an interesting poem of a kind. I don't think I've done. I've done one other one like that. Um, so it's a. It's based on an art exhibition that was on at the uh, Australian National Capital Artists Gallery, Anchor Gallery in um, Canberra, and they did an exhibition called Material Poetics, where a number of people who work um, between poetry and visual and concrete art. Um, got together and made some work. Some of the works had poems kind of embedded in them and some of them were uh, manifestations, as it were, or responses to pre-existing poems. Um, and some of them were kind of different beasts again. So, um, but each of them was very interesting in its own way. And I was asked to launch the exhibition. I wasn't in it, but um, I did know a number of people had work in it. So... I went along and had a kind of viewing of the exhibition and I went around and after I'd written my launch speech, I felt creatively stimulated by looking at all of the art and I, I thought a way to um, to capture that would be to make a poem that used as images all of the works in the exhibition. So um, the poem, I suppose because it's uh, responding to an exhibition called Material Poetics, the poem is... If, it, if it's about anything, it's about the, the process of making something um, and what happens, you know, the, the kind of old T.S. Eliot chestnut between the, the idea and the reality falls the shadow. Um, and But how sometimes that can, that, that kind of strange process, the, the warping that goes on between an idea and, and the actual thing that's realised when you make something, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes you get good things happen and sometimes what you intended is not what people take away and you just have to understand that that's part of the process of bringing something into the world. Um, so that's the kind of idea about things layering and matrix, matrixing and palimpsesting. They kind of go plural because everyone who sees a work takes something slightly different away from it. That's the swarm of eyes too. Mm. Um, but each of the... The images like needles and suturing, bruising, abrasion of skin, boxes and bottles and clumsy buckets and warps and warps and scorch marks and multiplying and going coral and matrix. And as they move over me, they will mark me. And also the words palimpsest and geology. Each of them comes from a description of an actual work. Um, in the exhibition, there were one, two, three, four, five, six works altogether that, that gave images to the poem. And they were by, I should just list the artists, um, Jordan Williams, Sarah Rice, Nikki Haynes, Jen Webb, and also members of the 
prose poetry project that Jen Webb works with at the International Poetry Studies Institute. Also, Karen Florence, Katie Hayne and Ursula Frederick. So all of those artists made work and images that I got from viewing the work went into the poem. But I did actually, once I'd got all of the images, I did actually put a little bit of care into trying to make it sound like it was one voice speaking. Um, so it's it's a it's not really a found poem, but it kind of started from the found images and 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 grew from there. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Yeah. What a fantastic way mm. to structure and and create a poem. It's like a collective ekphrastic poem. Almost. Yes. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Linda, one of the things I really enjoy about your poetry is you take, um, and in the new book as well, Goodbye Cruel, you take uh, sort of inspiration from so many different places, you know, from newspaper articles, many times from images, um, from history, you know, translations and, and so on and other texts. It's it's really, um, it's it seems to be a sort of a hallmark of your work, I think, and I really enjoy it. And, uh, yeah, I'm wondering when you write like that, is it a very different process for you than just sitting down just to write a poem that's coming purely uh, from, from your mind or your own experiences? Um, I think the, the processes are slightly different, um, but I enjoy both. I enjoy um, going deep into my own kind of... Uh, experience and history but I also enjoy getting out of my own head and trying to get images and poems from elsewhere um, and I mean I'm, I'm aware of um, you know the kind of debates in contemporary poetry about you know the end of subjectivity and also the end of the creation of new text and Goldsmith says there's so much text there already why create more um, mm. in his uncreative writing book um, and so there are um, there are a few experiments like that um, in my work, not only working with images as, as this poem manifest does, but, you know, working with found text and so forth. But I take a slightly different angle on it. I actually, I like to um, impose a subjectivity on the found text in a way and try and make mm -hmm. it speak with some kind of emotional truth, um, even though that wasn't there in... The original, so I'm uh, I'm not really following um, Ulipo or anything like that, or Goldsmith mm -hmm. um, word for word, and I'm not really following, you know, um, romantic utterance either. I'm doing mm -hmm. a slight mashup of the two, and I'm not sure if that's, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if that's intellectually valid, but it, it feels mm -hmm. creatively interesting to me to do that. So that's I'm just following that siren call and. Um, and going in that direction because I think um, you can mine your own experience and, and come up with new ways of, of um, expressing it and that's still going to create good poems but uh, if you're wanting to explore other ways of making poetry then um, you can do worse than get inspired by bits and pieces that you find. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And um, it's so, so you're looking um, within a text or images for something that resonates with you and then sort of writing writing through that. Through that, yeah. I, I call it trying to find the song in the material, really. Mm. Um, sometimes there's one there, sometimes you end up slightly imposing one from outside and sometimes there just mm. isn't one and you, you either abandon it or you make something that's most definitely got no music and no emotion in it. Yeah. Um, but 
yeah, it's, that's that's kind of the way I, I think about it. It seems with the material that you're tackling in Goodbye Crawl, you've definitely stepped out of a, a safe zone and you're talking about some really tough but really important subject matter. Um, can you talk a little bit about the decision to go with that? Certainly. Um, so for those readers or listeners who aren't aware, Goodbye Cruel, um, the whole book is not on this subject matter, but the, the second section of the book, I don't know, 18 to 20 poems, is um, on the theme of suicide. And um, the reason that I chose to go there is not um, before you all start worrying about me, I'm okay. <laughs> Um, but um, but I do. There are a few people in my circle who have talked quite seriously about it, and there's one person who has tried twice and is still with us. Um, and I just I don't know other if other writers feel this, but sometimes I feel like a subject will just stand up in my mind and say, "Write me, write me," and it won't go away until I write it. And that was the way that I felt about um, suicide with this collection. So. I wrote it from lots of different angles and you'll notice in that section of the book there's poems in a lot of different voices, um, poems of people who've tried and come back, poems in the voices of you know uh, parents and carers, uh, there's a poem from the perspective of a lifeline counsellor um, and you know a couple of kind of slightly ghostly poems from from trying to enter the consciousness of someone who's tried and succeeded um, and one kind of tying it all together and ending on a slight note of hope a poem in honour of um, Don Ritchie who uh, talked a lot of people out of committing suicide because he lived near the gap in Sydney so um, yeah that uh, once I decided I mean I'd written a couple of poems on the subject matter and when I was going through my um, kind of drafts and trying to do a bit of a clean out and work out what needed to keep going and what needed to be jettisoned, um, I realised that there were a couple on this subject matter and I thought, yeah, there's something coalescing there. So that's when I decided to, to actually make a section in my new book um, about that. And then all the rest of them, they're not necessarily connected in any way to the suicide poems, they're just other things that I was working on at the same time and so the book is a little bit of a grab bag and um, it's certainly not wall-to-wall suicide poems for those who are concerned um, that that's not something they necessarily want to get into um, but yeah it's certainly the heart of the book and that's why um, it's called Goodbye Cruel I figured I should put the content warning on the cover. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'm not quite yeah. sure how you've done it, but there's definitely no sense of disjointedness, even though that goodbye cruel section right in the middle there is is um focused exclusively on suicide. You move out of that into other areas. There's some wonderful Canberra poems that I want to ask you about later. Um cool. uh, yeah, and it's just like yeah. really natural kind of progression and I'm not really sure how that happens, but it's amazing. <laughs> mm. um, I agree, Alice. Yeah, yeah. I, I love Melinda's um, description of it as a, as a grab bag, it, it, but it's a sort of a delightful one. You know, it, as you say, it doesn't feel disjointed. There's a lot of variety. But I, to me it felt like the underlying sort of connection um, that sort of uh, held it thematically together, um, it was a sense that, 
um, there's always something a little bit sort of dark lurking under the surface. You know, there's um, a lot of, as you say, suburban poems, Canberra poems um, and other sorts of poems, but there's always just this little, I don't know, this little darkness that threatens to push its way up there. I don't know if that's just me or if it's something oh, you're aware of, Melinda, or... No, 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 that, I, I think there's definitely um, that slant in the way I see the world. Not that I'm a pessimist, but mm. that I, I feel very strongly my duty is to very closely observe things and to speak truthfully about what is really there, not what I want to be there. Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, real life is like that, there's, there's light and dark all mixed in together. And so even in, you know, reasonably lighthearted poems, there's, there's always a slight darkness there. Um, and you know the uh, the book kind of peters out into a slightly apocalyptic section called End Time, where mm. things get reasonably dark, um, because you know that I mean I'm just dealing with the fact that that's in the in the air at the moment, the zeitgeist. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right that there that is just a kind of tint um, to the way I see the world. Not um, not that I'm de you know depressed about the world. I just I kind of I'm loving it in all its colours, so to speak, mm. or hemming it in all its colours. Yes, yes, that's a beautiful description, and that um, that sort of um, brings up the uh, the question of motherhood, which is always another big theme in your poetry, and something sort of close to my writing as well. And you know, for many. Um, many women who are mothers and poets and um yeah there's there's a fair few motherhood poems in here and once again they're not all um they're not all rosy and cheery is that another ongoing thematic concern for you oh, I, I think it will will tend to be um for a long time yet um mm. um I, I i was just reading yesterday there's this fabulous project called uh, Creative Residency in Motherhood, or maybe it's a, yeah. It, anyway, if you Google that, you may find the website. I think it's a project set up by um, people. I'm not even sure if it's an Australian um, idea or if it's if it's set up um, by a couple in the UK. But the idea is um, when you become a parent and you were already doing creative work, the way you do your creative work has to change because of the number of interruptions and you know what what physically and mentally having another person to care for does to you mm. um, and the idea is rather than trying to make work in spite of that and pretend like it's not happening to you um, set your creative practice in that space and engage with it directly and um, see what comes out and not all of it will be great art just, because, just as you know when you go on a residency somewhere for a couple of weeks not everything you write ends up being any good but um, but the idea of actually using it rather as than it so turning it from an obstacle into an opportunity um, and, a, and a way to extend yourself and explore the new experience that you're having in a creative way as well as just living through it um, mm. so I think that's um, I didn't know that I was attempting to do that in my previous books where I were kind of wrote about motherhood. I just felt like I wanted to, yeah, I felt um, slightly isolated by the whole experience of having mm. a, well, having a child and having a child with special needs, which meant that it was 
even less easy to leave him. Um, yeah. And I felt very strongly I wanted to make the other people in my situation, I knew they were there, but it was hard for us to contact each other, at least before mm. Facebook groups were a thing. Um, wanted to make it, make people feel like they weren't alone. So it was really out of that impulse that that writing um, poems that I've written on the theme of motherhood came. And, um, and that it will continue, I suppose, to be informed by that wish of including that experience in the things that are written about. And it's not like I'm the first person ever to write motherhood poems, you know, there's plenty in the Australian poetic tradition and, and plenty in um, uh, world English language poetry that I'm aware of as well. But um, I don't feel like we've had too many of them. I, f I feel like it's a subject matter that is still uh, difficult to get published um, in certain places because it's perceived as, you know, a, a women's issue rather than just mm. a human experience that's worthy of um, making art about. So I, I feel like we haven't had all the words that we can have in that space and I'm quite happy to contribute some more. I, I think you're right. It's often lack of uh, connection and lack of honesty that isolates people when they, especially when they first become parents. Um, so anything that helps with that is a, you know, is a wonderful thing. I, I love to read motherhood poems, I must say. <laughs> Likewise, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is a constant kind of juggling. I mean, you know, all working mothers, whatever they're attempting to do as well as mothering um, are constantly juggling and constantly feeling like they're doing everything badly. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you remember mm. that that um, that instance where the BBC um, political commentator got oh, interrupted yeah. during a Skype interview by his kids and then there was a, a parody online mm. with a woman equivalent and she was basically feeding the kids and defusing a bomb and doing all mm. this stuff while That's making scary. perfect sense to camera <laughs> on Korean <laughs> politics. And um, mm -hmm. that, you know, all working mothers who, you know, have some kind of responsibility outside the home as well as inside the home are all constantly doing that juggle. Um, and with a creative life, it's just, well, with a, a poetry-centred life, it's, it's slightly harder in one way in that you never make any money from poetry. So it is really, really hard to justify the time that you devote to it um, because it's not redeemable for cash. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm in a, a useful position of having um, still living off some ill-gotten gains from a couple of years ago. So I don't um, at the moment have to have much work um, that brings in money. So I'm, I'm in a really um, cushy position compared to um, a lot of other um, women writers I know who have kind of motherhood responsibilities and um, freelance writing or um, academic writing or whatever their other day job is and their creative writing as well. Whereas myself, I really only have to balance my creative writing and, and um, the special needs parenting Olympics. And... Um, mm -hmm. That feels like enough some days, but but I'm aware that I'm I'm, I'm kind of got it easier than some. Uh, but I will say that um, a lot of this particular book came together on a, an actual proper residency, two weeks of total solitude at Bundan on um, the Arthur Boyd property down on the Shoalhaven. And there's no way this book would have got finished if I hadn't actually um, done that to my family. Actually, left them totally 
to their own devices for two weeks. And I had a spreadsheet of all the different shifts that needed to be covered while I was away because I am the primary carer. Um, you know, I'm there every afternoon after school. Um, I'm the one who does all the ferrying of people to soccer training and all of that kind of stuff. And all of that needed to happen without me there. You know, someone needed to do the cooking while I wasn't there. And, you know, my wonderful partner, um, did an amazing job and my parents helped and a couple of our paid carers who we have for my son helped as well. Um, and it was an enormous undertaking to, to make that space, but two weeks of only speaking to people when I felt like it and not having to cook or clean or do anything for anyone other than myself um, at Bundanon was the most amazing gift. Um, and yeah, the book, the book really couldn't have happened without it. So I owe an enormous debt to the the Bundan on Trust for letting me go there last May. I really love what you're saying about the poetry of motherhood and the fact that there are a lot more words to be said. I think the same is probably true of suicide. And in reading your book, I had this moment. Um, it was reading the poem, A Plate of Biscuits, which mm. I was happy to see in the notes was actually based on Someone else's uh, fictional story. account. Yeah, I was yeah, quite devastated for a short time, thinking, "Oh my god, this is this really happened." But um, it's a it's a very quiet, beautifully constructed uh, lyric poem, and I've been thinking a lot recently about the place of the lyric and how that relates to women writers and. Um, conversation that's sort of happening in Australian poetry at the moment about how much more time are we going to spend with lyric poetry if any mm. and feeling like in sort of a not like overt but kind of a quiet pressure to like not do any more of that kind of writing and mm. I read this poem and I was like nope it has to be <laughs> this has to be a lyric poem we need to know what is happening if there is any like doubt or there's any lack of like total clarity and accessibility then you are messing with this incredibly important um uh message that is there to make people feel less alone and to make people feel comforted and um yeah it was just totally like okay i feel fine now about the whole lyric thing (laughs) (laughs) i think i mean the great thing about poetry and, and australian poetry as well is that it's um it's a very broad church, as it well, and as it were, and there are a lot of people doing a lot of really diverse things. Um, and just because something has been, you know, on the table for a while, doesn't necessarily mean um, that it's it's exhausted itself. Um, but it also means you know, that it's not compulsory for everyone to write in that way. And, and um, I think. It, Poetry is incredibly enriched by people who are trying to push beyond the lyric and to, to contribute other ways of kind of realising a, a textual um, piece of art onto the page. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Alice, in that I think that uh, for me the lyric certainly isn't dead. I mean, I try and push it towards dramatic monologue sometimes in my work. Um, because a lot of the I, the lyric I in my poem is not really me, uh, particularly that one that you you spoke about, A Plate of Biscuits, the lyric I is actually a young boy, um, although it could be interpreted as a young girl. It, it's not necessary to the poem that it be any particular gender, but 
um, it comes from this, a story of you know a, a child who lost his mother uh, to suicide. Um, but if you want to have that kind of connective response with a reader, if you want to have that slightly I hesitate to use the word therapeutic, but if you if you want to actually connect in a healing way with a reader, then the lyric eye is one of the ways to do that most efficiently, or the dramatic monologue eye, if you like. A poem in the first person just goes in um, further and deeper, and um, if that's one of the things that you want the poem to do, then, then putting it in the first person um, can help it achieve its mission, so to speak. And I know... Uh, People um, listening to the podcast are probably vomiting at the idea of a poem having a mission and um, <laughs> we are suspicious of poetry which has designs upon us and, and if I want to pick up the – if I sorry, if I want to communicate, I'll pick up the telephone and all of these things that have been said about um, that kind of thing. But uh, there's a kind of a quiet bearing witness um, function, I suppose, and a, a companionable um, being in a moment – um, and, and describing it in a way that includes people, um, that I think, you know, a poem set in the first person can achieve. And um, so I'm, as long as that's um, something I want to do and as long as I feel able to do that, I will still be writing um, poems with an eye in them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's not that you're only doing that. You're definitely pushing past it in many many of the other poems as well and um but i like what you say about efficiency right so it's like you could definitely have the same kind of effect and i certainly have had um that same emotional effect reading very experimental poems and that kind of mind Mm. explosion feeling but Mm. there's a risk i guess um that your reader might not have the patience or the education yeah, or the time come with you. yeah and it's yeah. for me it's a slightly democratic impulse as well i mean mm. i i come from country new south wales i um am very aware of uh people for whom poetry is a closed universe that because it feels like it doesn't include them and um in some senses, in some of my poems, I'm trying to welcome them in. And, yeah, it, 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 that, that effort won't work if I get too clever. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I think we have time to talk a little bit about the poem The Suicides by Janet Frame, which is epigraphic, I think, in two of the poems in Goodbye Cruel. Is that right? Or is it just That's one? That's right. Yeah. Um, no, it's two. It's two of them, yeah. And... I found this poem online on a website called funeralhelper.org. Oh, my gosh, yes. I was, I was kind of frightened to find that there. Yeah, it's really interesting because it um, the, the URL, there's no explanation, but the URL tells you what you need to know. It's non-religious, the suicides. So it's kind of saying if you're at a funeral and you need to read a poem probably for someone who's committed suicide and you don't want it to be religious, then here's a funeral reading for you. Um, yeah. Did you want to read it for us before we get any further into the poem? I'd, I'd love to read it. It's, I wonder what Janet would think of that. Mm. Um, or I wonder if that w- had already been operating in, if that poem had already been kind of appropriated into that space before she died. I'd give anything to find out. Anyway, I will, 
I'll read the poem and then we can talk about it. This was um, first published in her book, The Pocket Mirror, in 1967, I think. Um, and um, it goes like this. The Suicides. It is hard for us to enter the kind of despair they must have known. And because it is hard, we must get in by breaking the lock, if necessary, for we have not the key. Though for them, there was no lock and the surrounding walls were supple, receiving as waves, and they drowned, though not lovingly. It is we only who must enter in this way. Temptations will beset us once we are in. We may want to catalogue what they have stolen. We may feel suspicion. We may even criticise the decor of their suicidal despair. May perhaps feel it was incongruously comfortable. Knowing the temptations then, let us go in, deep to their despair and their skin, and know they died because words they had spoken returned always homeless to them. Thank you, Janet Frame. Yep. That's an amazing poem, and it would be a, a brave reader, I think, who would get up in front of friends and family of someone who committed suicide and read that. But there is there is a lot in there. There's a huge amount of space to think about the things that come up after someone's committed suicide. You know, there is the last line starts, no, they died because. Mm. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge um, issue. And it's 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 kind of yeah it's brave of Janet Frampton to, to kind of articulate it in that way, but it is it's it's the kind of sore point that everyone is circling around at a funeral. They don't want mm. there to be a reason. They don't want there to be a thing that we could have done to stop it. Um, so to say that actually there might have been a thing um, that the living could have done to stop it is is really breaking a lot of taboos, um, mm. but. Yeah, and I mean, I had a, a very strong response when I first read this poem. I thought, what am I doing writing about suicide? Because basically, I, there's nothing else to say um, apart from what's in this poem. Um, but I I kind of kept pushing on bloody-mindedly and, and as a way of showing that I knew that Janet Frame had pretty much already done all there was to be done, I um, took some of the lines as epigraphs. So, yeah, it's just something about that poem and, and all the poems in the good by cruel section that just really strike me as so important in terms of making space to think about these really difficult things and and after you read that section you really don't come out feeling in any way like weighed down or um, depressed it's it's more like there's a bit more freedom around it because things have been stated and articulated that that felt completely off limits. Um, yeah. Which oh, I, I really I'm appreciate. so glad to hear you say that, Alice, um, because, I mean, that's that's what I hoped for from that section of the book was really to, you know, when, when someone takes their own life, there's this great pool of silence that wells up and kind of overwhelms everything and people just aren't allowed to speak frankly about mm. it. Um, and they, they have to struggle very hard to, to say anything true or 
authentic. Um, and, and, and that, that great big pool of silence can, can actually, um, stop a family and a community healing, um, properly because they're not able to, to work through what, what, what's going on for them. And, and it also can make it difficult for people who are themselves thinking, um, that they want to end their life. It can make it difficult for them to feel okay about speaking up and seeking help or just mm. saying to someone what, what they're, what's truly in their mind. And so it's not like, you know, one little book of poetry in one little, um, kind of town in Australia is going to do anything of any significance. But I just wanted to, to make a few splashes in that pool to drop a few words in there, um, mm. just to make, you know, to start a conversation. And if, if, um, if anyone, even only one conversation gets started that wouldn't have started if, if this book didn't exist, then, you know, I basically can say that um, it was all worthwhile. I think that's so important, Melinda, and I, I absolutely got the same sense as Alice. Um, I didn't feel weighed down. It did feel liberating. And I think it's particularly important to tackle these subjects in poetry because Poetry is something people who don't even generally read poetry turn to when they go through traumatic experiences. That is when we want um, to connect to someone who is talking about the real stuff and the deep stuff and dust stuff and the dark stuff. And so I think particularly for poets, it's um, incredibly brave and important to be very sort of wide-eyed and clear-eyed um, about these things and to write about them because that is a place that people do turn to. You know, even at funerals, people who never read a poem will suddenly read one out at a funeral. So, mm, you know, mm. I think it's it's incredibly important and, you know, I, I really, really loved the book and it did, doesn't feel heavy at all. That's that's really um, quite uh, quite affirming to hear you say that. Um, because as as we discussed at the beginning, it's it's difficult when you've spent so long with something to know whether it's doing what you wanted it to do in any way, shape or form. Yeah, no, I think you can definitely have faith in that. Um, we've just got a few minutes left to play with and I don't want to let you go without asking some questions as a Canberra writer. Um, so I was born in Canberra. I lived there until I was 27. So I feel very oh, much wow. like Canberra is like, oh, yeah, oh, yes. Um, yeah, Canberra is like, uh, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated it's with being Canberra. You, it's part of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I've been toying with this idea of whether there is a Canberra school of poetry poetic writing but as I'm no longer there I don't really feel like I'm in a good place to judge but what would you say to that is that something that you think is is uh could you draw a line around all the poets writing in Canberra and say um, everyone's got this yeah that's a very interesting question do you know I think that it might have been more possible in the days of A.D. Hope um when he was here at the ANU and he he collected around him a coterie of admirers and imitators and, and supporters and um, there was a kind of eighty Hope coterie voice, I suppose, um, that you could identify or maybe not a voice, maybe a, just a sensibility. And people like um, Alan Gould and Jeff Page and, and David Campbell and Rosemary Dobson often gets lumped in with them too, but I think her she was at a slight angle 
to the way they were seeing things. Um, so in that generation, and you know, Judith Wright was here um, in and out of Canberra and, and living um, over the hill in Braidwood um, for a lot of her later life as well. So she was kind of dipping in and out, but she herself has a very distinctive voice. So um, yeah, I think maybe in that generation there was partly a kind of Canberra school as it were, and um, in the generation since then, I think it's it's quite fragmented. I mean, there are there are poets here who are writing um, wonderful things, but there's they're not all sounding like each other, and they're not all trying to impress a particular guru. Um, so I think there's a bit more diversity now um, than than there was in that generation. And, you know, there's just more people here now and there's more, um, therefore, more poets here now. And you get people like um, Sarah Rice, who you might not have heard much of Sarah's work. She's won a few prizes and she's about to have a, a book come out with UWAP. Um, and she's a visual artist and a poet and so a lot of her work is informed by ekphrasis and ideas about, um, well, kind of art philosophy, art theory ideas, um, as well as um, kind of literary ideas. There is, um, I suppose, at the University of Canberra, there is now um, an International Poetry Studies Institute that's got funding and um, support from, you know, the executive at the University of Canberra, and they've run this amazing festival. This year is going to be the third year of it called Poetry on the Move, and they get really big international poetry names and people from all over the place to come for a couple of weeks to Canberra and I think that's really revitalised um, kind of poetic activity and lots and lots of different people um, engage with that festival. You know, we have, we had Tusiata Avia who's a um, Samoan writer from New Zealand come last year and Simon Armitage, as in, you know, the Simon Armitage um, came. We had Alvin Pang from Singapore and a couple of other fabulous poets from Singapore. Um, Tanya de Rosario and Pooja Nancy came as well. And just that kind of um, cross-pollination that goes on when you get that many different voices um, all reading at a festival and um, what's happening. You can see the, the creative writing students sitting at the University of Canberra sitting in the room with their mouths open and you can think, oh, great, you know, look at all this fertiliser going in. <laughs> I can't <laughs> wait to see what kinds of poems they're going to write. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, I suppose it's quite an interesting time to be a poet um, in Canberra right now, far more interesting than it possibly was. I mean, I've been here almost 30 years, so I suppose I'm a Canberran now. Um, but, yeah, when I first came, there wasn't... There was basically, um, there was still Jeff Page who has always organised a fabulous, well not always, but you know, for the past at least 30 years, I think has organised a, a monthly series of poetry readings where he gets quite a lot of um, poets with national reputations to come from across Australia and read to Canberrans. So that's been an ongoing kind of place of nourishment for Canberra poets. Um, but it's good to see that other things are also happening now to complement um, the dynamic that that 
has set up. And there's a very, very fertile performance and slam scene here that wasn't here even 15 years ago. So um, that is also really kind of exciting and um, heartening to see. So I don't know if that helps you. No, it's really good to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of um, uh, affirming a few things that I had thought, but, yeah, there's other things in there that I didn't know about. So that's really good to hear. Well, I best let you go. I believe that both you and Michelle are off to do the school run, so I'm going to let you do that. Yes. Wanted to mention that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Melinda. I look look forward to, to listening back and thank you so much for having me, both of you. It's been fabulous. 